Uh, it's uh, glad to be with you here this morning. You might be confused. What's going on? Uh, well, I am recording this. Again, I'm, I'm going to bro- broadcast it live to Facebook to record it uh, as well. But I just wanted to, uh, to make sure that we have this sermon. I felt like this was such an important sermon. And it got cut off yesterday because the, the little power cord on the back of the, the camera got wiggled loose. And so it didn't get the whole sermon. And so I wanted to make sure that we were able to <coughs> get this entire sermon uh, for people to watch and to listen to. And uh, because I believe that, that this is a, a very important sermon uh, that will be uh, necessary for us going forward. Um, and, and just as in the totality of the book of, of Luke altogether. Uh, so I wanted to get that, get this uh, recorded for future use and for just for viewing, uh, to be able to be a part of this series in the book of Luke. So if you're watching, uh, I would love to, uh, to lead you through Luke chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 5, verses 20. We're going to read 27 through 39. And uh, so this is, uh, this is Luke chapter 27. Now, we started out this, this passage a couple weeks, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, but I wanted to revisit it because it is one big section, we'll, which we'll get to here in a moment. So uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39 says this. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. Follow me, he said. And he abandoned everything, got up and followed him. Levi made a great feast for him in his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were reclining at table. The Pharisees and the legal experts began to grumble to Jesus' disciples. Why do you, why do you lot eat and drink, they asked, with tax collectors and sinners? Well, healthy people don't need a doctor, replied Jesus. It's the sick people who do. I haven't come to call the righteous. I'm calling sinners to repentance, to change their minds. John's disciples often fast and say prayers, they said to him. And so do the Pharisees' followers. But your disciples eat and drink. Jesus replied, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. That's when they will fast. He added this parable. Nobody tears a piece of cloth from a new coat to make a patch on an old one. If they do, they tear the new. And the old and the patch from it won't fit the old one anyway. And nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the new wine will burst the skins. It will go to waste and the skins will be ruined too. You have to put new wine in new skins. And nobody who drinks old wine wants new. I prefer the old, they say. <clears throat> well, this morning, as I preached through this, the, the, the point uh, this morning is, like you saw the title slide, it is juxtaposing the joy less with the joy full. <clears throat> now, as we've seen the, through, through the scripture passage here, there's, there's, there's this juxtaposition between the two. Now, let's ask that question. What does it mean? What does the word juxtapose mean? So let's look at that word. Juxtapose is to place side by side for comparison or contrast. Uh, now, that's the, that is going to be the, the title of the sermon to, here today around that theme of juxtaposing, taking these two figures, these, these two groups of people, and comparing them side by side. Now, this week I was, uh, I was looking at, a, uh, <coughs> at a, a reviews for this movie based on a biblical character. And uh, it was very interesting. So it's, it's a film, you know, not a movie. It's a film, which means it's, you know, hoity-toity. But uh, so it's a, this film about this biblical character and by some pretty well-known actors. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to check this, just, just check out some reviews for it. And so I started checking out some reviews for it and, uh, and saw that uh, it, the very first one that caught my eye was like eight or nine out of 10. It was pretty high. And the first words I noticed were, I am an agnostic. I was like, hmm, that's intriguing. Clicked it. I'm an agnostic, and this movie came so close to making me have a come-to-Jesus moment. And so it's this great depiction of this, this person who struggles with belief about what do we believe in the spiritual realm. And this movie, this film, was able to kind of tap into that, 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 you know, that element in, the, in a person's life that makes this, the faith claims of the Bible real. And, uh, but then it's interesting, the very next comment that I saw 
was this like person, he was like a one out of 10. And they're like, oh, this movie is so terrible. Ah, this scripture and that scripture and this scripture and that. It's like all these things. And like, I read most of the, the scripture passages and none of them had anything to do with what they're trying to make a point for. But it's very interesting just to see the juxtaposition on a review for, for a biblical character movie of an unbeliever praising the movie and a believer being super critical and all gloomy and gloomy gussy and joyless uh, when they were looking at this, this film. And so it's interesting just to see that even today, that is so, so part and parcel what's going on in our culture, is that the faith claims of Christian today have been severely diminished by the unloving and grumbling and unjoyful disposition of many Christians who are more concerned with being factually right than being loving and joyful like Jesus, our God. <clears throat> and so this morning, we're going to be juxtaposing, placing side by side the joyful and the joyless. Um, so getting started. So have you ever, uh, <clears throat> ever paused a movie? That's what we're talking about before we started reading the scripture. Ever paused like a movie or like a TV show, like in the middle of an episode, and it was like a couple weeks or so before you're able to like get back to it. Uh, and so you pick up and you're like, wait, what's going on here? Uh, I forgot where we're at. So you have to like do the hit the, you know, the, the go, go back like 10 or 15 seconds thing and keep, you know, okay, I'm still, still lost, you know, going back. I'm just going to go back to the beginning of the, of the episode. And so this is basically kind of what we're doing here this morning is that we're, we're going back to the setting uh, from two weeks ago because this is the same setting. This is basically one, one narrative that I, I wanted to, I, I broke apart into two because it just, I felt like it had two, two concepts that I wanted, really wanted to touch on. So the, the first one a couple weeks ago was the call of Levi. Uh, so call, the call of, of Levi, who was also known as Matthew. And so if you go back a couple weeks, uh, before, like one week before Easter, Palm Sunday, uh, I preached through the call of Levi. And so, uh, then, so at the end of that, he throws this awesome banquet, this epic banquet with, with invitations, with you know, with, you know, with table decorations and, and settings and like all the, 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 the trappings and the, you know, the, the, the cups and the silverware and the, and the different plates and, um, and, and just and the entertainment and everything. Like this was a fancy banquet. The only time this word is ever used else, elsewise in, in, in the New Testament is when Jesus is, is calling forth. And he said, you know, when you, he's telling a parable when, you know, there's this great banquet that was set and, you know, inviting all these people and every single person had an excuse. And so we'll get to that uh, in a, in a, after a while. But this is the only other place that this phrase, great banquet, is ever used in the New Testament in, in, in imaging the great uh, future feast, which we'll get to later. But the, 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 these, the, these Pharisees are, you know, come to Jesus and they're grumbling. This is what I like to call the sinner dinner because these Pharisees and disciples of John uh, are coming to, to Jesus' disciples and saying, why do you eat and drink with sinners? You know, they have all these questions. And, you know, they're, they're staying outside. These Pharisees are probably staying outside the gate because they, they won't even dare to come into an unclean um, Jewish home because, you know, this, this guy, this tax collector, would go and spend time all over, like in different Roman buildings and different provinces. And so even he was, a, he was considered a sinner, and so to even step foot in his, his property was most likely, it was just, it was just viewed as this like, you, you grow. So you don't, you don't step foot in a sinner's home in that culture. Um, and so they stayed outside and they're having this debate with Jesus' disciples at the gate. Um, so the question, the, the, the question that they, they come back to, um, you know, is why do you eat and drink? Why don't you fast? So the question, to eat or not to eat, that is the question. Um, because they were grumbling about two different things here. The first one is, um, is eating and drinking with, with certain people. And we, talk, we covered that a couple weeks ago. And so now we come to this question about fasting. And so Jewish culture, they had this, this practice of fasting every Monday and every Thursday. And so according to the context of the scripture passage, we can see that it's, it's, it, this, this whole narrative is happening either on a Monday or a Thursday, most likely. Um, because these Pharisees... Um, and most likely John's disciples are, are, are fasting. They're in the middle of this. That's why they're asking these questions. Why do you eat and drink? You know, the, if, you know John's disciples and the, and the disciples of the Pharisees, they fast. <clears throat> but why do, you? why do you? Why do your disciples not? 
Now, the reason why we think that it's also John's disciples, and most likely that's John's disciples that are asking this question, is because we see this the same narrative being told you know, in, the, in the previous two gospel narratives, uh, Matthew chapter 9 and, and Mark chapter 2. And both of them have, the, have John's disciples asking this question. And so the Pharisees, this is like this, this uh, assimilation, uh, this uh, solidarity between the, the Pharisees and, and John's disciples the, because they were both very staunch religious, very um, very by-the-book type people, very religious, very Hasidic, if you would call it, um, uh, very devout to, to the strict order of the law and the mission and the Talmud and the practices. And so this is, you know, the, it's most likely them two together on a day of fasting, coming together, coming to, to Jesus and his disciples and grumbling against them, trying to get them to follow their religious order, uh, which we'll get to in, in, a, in a little while. But uh, so the question is, you know, eating and drinking with sinners. So they had a problem with who Jesus was eating with. Go back a couple weeks and watch that sermon. But now they're asking this other question. Why are you not eating? And I can almost see the, the situation. Like Jesus is like standing there at the gate because they're most likely, of course, outside and they're inside. And so they're, they're, they're in this position. And, and uh, he looks behind him and he's like, do you not see behind me? Do you not see where we're at? Do you not see the banquet that was thrown for me in my honor with my name <clears throat> to honor me? It's weird that they're taking really weird opportunity to question him about this at a banquet. <laughs> it's like, do you not see behind me? Um, and also, I mean, rude. I mean, who does that? Who interrupts a feast that they weren't even invited to? It's like, anyway. So, let's, let's talk about this, this, this concept of fasting. Now, fasting um, is this, is this self-denial, as, as the CSB translation, which we normally read, um, t- it translates it as is self-denial in the Old Testament, which simply just means not eating. So, it's got the word for eating and the ah in front of it that means not eating. That's all it means. You know, not consuming, not partaking, not eating and consuming. Um, and so they would, uh, the Jewish people viewed, viewed fasting as this sign of waiting. You know, this, they were waiting on God's mercy, God's presence, God's sending of the Messiah. Uh, they were bewailing the present time uh, when God's kingdom, they believed, had not yet arrived, had not yet come. Uh, and it's, actually, it's also been actually said, you cannot be spiritual unless you are uncomfortable. Um, this is when, you know, view, when, uh, tr- you know, true religion, you know, quote unquote, is viewed as as solemn and and gloomy and joyless. It's like this 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 joyless, just kind of bleh existence. But it's like if you feel too happy, then you're being unreligious. You're being ear. You know, you're being blasphemous almost. You have too much joy, um, and so. So basically, it becomes this doing things you don't want to do and not doing the things that you want to do. Um, however, you know, of course, it's mostly, especially today, it's mostly the do nots, right? It's the don't do this and don't do that and don't have fun and don't do this and don't drink and don't chew and don't date girls that do, as I was taught growing up, right? <laughs> um, it's this, uh, as Colossians 2, 16 says, uh, therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels. Claiming access to a visionary realm, such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live? Why do you live as, live as if you still belonged to this world? Why do you submit to regulations? You know, do not handle, don't taste, don't touch. Are these regu- all these re- regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up? They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom and promoting a self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. This asceticism and severity to the body, 
You know, this was even taken literally like in the Middle Ages where guy, you know, monks used to like take this like cat of nine tails and like and whip themselves to suffer the same kind of physical pain that Jesus would. This still goes on today in many parts of the world where there's, there's even, I think in the Philippines, a place where you can actually be crucified. They literally put nails through your hands and your feet and crucify you. Now, they don't kill you, but they hang you up there to feel the pain and the, and the shame. It's like this weird religious mentality of I have to do these things and don't do these things in order to please God, in order to earn God's favor, in order to, you know, to work my way up to heaven or at least keep a short account with God because I go on and on and on. Um, it's just this ah, religion. And sadly, this is so many of, of, of Christians' belief today. So much of what you know, many churches even teach today still. Um, and, and this is, a, this is super, a super bummer. And this is something that really burdens my heart is the religious mentality and the religious preaching, the religious doctrines that are indoctrinated into people. That you have to do, 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 and don't, 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 don't. Mostly the don'ts, right? But I love this word. But God. The kingdom of God is not a life of do's and don'ts, but a new being and a new, a life of new desires. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he gives you his Holy Spirit. He makes you a new creation, a new being. It's not about a new set of rules. It's about a new enti entire existence. And because of that new existence, God, through his Spirit, gives you new desires. And you walk in those new desires. Scripture shows us these new desires. The things that have been cast off, the things that have been put to death, and we're you know, putting on the new, we're discovering the newness of the new creation that God has, cre has given us and created us to, to live and to walk in. And the, in the greatest way that we learn our new being and learn about our new desires and, and, to, and to discover them is in community. And Jesus knew this. Why? Because he, the, the majority of Jesus' ministry was around the table. Let's, and so we're going we're gonna to go back to the table fellowship Revisited. We're going to go back and, and, and see how this, everything about this passage is all about table fellowship. Jesus, the centerpiece of Jesus' ministry was the table, was coming together to break bread and drink wine with, with people around the table. This was literally the bread and butter of Jesus' ministry. Jesus would, would go out and he would heal it and, 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 uh, call, and, and do these different miracles and call people and people would follow him so that they could come and join him around his table. Come and join him in relationship with him. Uh, because, you know, this is a, a big subject. I've just been learning, just tapping the surface, you know, scratching the surface of what this even looks like because this is such a huge thing. Not only is there so much all over Scripture that talks about you know, God's table fellowship from the beginning in the garden to the last pages in Revelation, the, you know, the creation, the world, history itself begins with a meal in the garden and, and at, you know, partaking of you know, God giving out all things for food for the man. And then at the end, you know, drinking freely from the river of life. Eating and drinking are the bookends to the very history of the life of God's people. And so this is where God centers his ministry is around the table. Now, there's no consensus on necessarily the method. Some people talk about, you know, more of like this, you know, like a symposium, like teaching-wise. Other people are like more relations. We don't really know exactly. There's, there's elements of, of both we can kind of see throughout Scripture. Uh, but most agree that Jesus' purpose behind table, ta table fellowship was this, covenant relationship. All throughout Scripture, you can see this, this imagery of, of covenant relationship coming together around a, around a meal to establish a covenant. And this is Jesus, whenever he's eating with people, he's trying to establish this covenant relationship with them, bringing them in, or bringing them in, and then sharing a meal. Like, for instance, like with Levi. We, started, we just saw this with Levi. Le he called Levi in, and then Levi hosted a dinner, and he shared a meal with Levi. So he brought Levi, Matthew, you know, who, would become, who will become one of the twelve, he brought him into this covenant relationship with him and shared a meal. Later on, we'll see Zacchaeus. 
um, later down in Scripture, like that Jesus called Zacchaeus and his, his life was, was transformed. He followed him. And not only followed him, he led, him, he led Jesus to his own house to share a meal. This covenant relationship with people. And then so much so that this is continued on later on um, in, in the Scripture here. Um, you know, we see all throughout, I mean, the, the Last Supper, and we see in, in the, new, or the early church, you know, Acts chapter 2, which we'll get to later. But all this is, is, is as N.T. Wright says, like all of Jesus' parties, it is a sign of the new age, a mini messianic banquet. Every table of fellowship that Jesus shared pointed to the great banquet feast of the Lamb. As it says in Revelation 19, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. God's kingdom and the time for mercy, healing, celebrating that they were waiting for, that they would fast in waiting for, and the new way of joy has come. That is Jesus' whole message. That is Jesus' message about this, this table fellowship. That is Jesus' message whenever he's healing people and bringing them into this covenant relationship with them. And all of this, I mean, all of this is pointing to that great marriage feast. I mean, hence, the marriage feast analogy that Jesus gives. You know, can the, what does he say? You know, can the, you know, can, can you make the wedding feasts, wedding, wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Right? He asks this question. Now it's interesting. So, so a, you know, the uh, an a, a ancient Jewish wedding, um, it, they you know they didn't have honeymoons. You know, I just had a, a phone call this last week with with a friend of mine from Waco that I knew, uh, and he and his wife got married about the same time Amberlynn and I did, about seven years ago, and it was so crazy. So he called me. He was like, "Hey, we're coming through that during, that that way, you know, to finally have a honeymoon." I was like, "You've been married for like seven years, and you're you're now finally." <laughs> honeymoon so they didn't take honeymoons back then what they did is they had this week-long festival this week-long feast and you know, people would come and go like guests would come and go like they'd be there for a day or two and, they, and they'd leave and this was this beautiful party this they would it was they were treated like royalty they were they were known as like you know kind of viewed as like the king and the queen of the party so much so that oftentimes they would wear crowns they would wear like the family jewels um for this special sacred occasion. I mean, Jesus' new kingdom and his presence bring a party. They are, they, they are a party. And this is Jesus' point. It's like, while I'm here, they can't fast because this is a party. My presence, God's presence is a party. And I tell you, Jew, Jewish people knew how to party. Jesus, Jesus and his disciples, they knew how to party. Think about it. The, the wedding feast at Cana in, in, uh, in the book of John, they didn't run out of wine until Jesus and his disciples showed up. They, these guys knew how to party. And that's why Jesus used this imagery of a wedding feast. I mean, the, and to connect the, the, these two dots, let me give you an illustration. So rabbinical teaching actually had this very specific uh, teaching that, that said this. All in, all in attendance on the bridegroom, again, he's the bridegroom, you know, while the bridegroom is with them, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observations which would lessen their joy. Jesus is saying, my presence justifies a feast. Jesus' kingdom is marked by and best experienced in great joy. Now, here's the thing. Then and now, Jesus' presence, Jesus' kingdom is marked best and experienced best in great joy. He says, you know, when he's taken away, you know, by the, but the time will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. 
That's when they will fast. And when was that? The cross. The bridegroom was taken away from them and they, and they, they fasted. Now, when you're in mourning, you don't want to eat. Jesus' eternal table is characterized by joy. And we see this beautiful picture in Jesus of what joy looks like. Because Jesus' sinless human personality radiated joy. He wasn't some solemn, just you know, rebuking Pharisees all day and, you know, and, then, and then rebuking his disciples' you know, faithlessness at night. He was a joyful person. Jesus is a joyful person. And his existence exudes that radiant joy. And that is what we live in still today. Because we are given his Holy Spirit. And here's the deal. Even in our trials, even in our, our struggles, even in the oppression and oppression and the, and the, the circumstances all around us, and, and he, uh, so as it says in James chapter 1, consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And I, I want to make this, this clear. I'm not talking about happiness. Happiness and joy, I would put in two different camps. Now, I know there's other people who wouldn't, but I, I'm, I'm putting joy and happiness in two separate camps. That joy is something that we have all the time. Happiness is based on circumstances. Happiness is, I'm, you know, this happened, so I'm happy. I'm happy at my happenstance, right? And so this, 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 you know, I'm blessed by this. I'm glad because of this. It's a reactionary response to something. Whereas joy brings this, this gladness, brings this blessing to our circumstances, one is from our circumstances and one is brought to our circumstances. Joy is something that we have in the Lord. Joy is something that is cultivated around the table with, with other believers, with other disciples of Jesus, with Jesus in our presence. It, but, and so it is that joy that is built, that is cultivated, that is grown outside of the circumstances that we bring, it fills us up and we bring that joy to our circumstances. We bring that joy to an anxious world. I love that phrase, being an, a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. Because we have this joy built up and overflowing in our spirits because of the eternal life bubbling up within us. The Holy Spirit bubbling up, as John 7 says, you know, the Holy Spirit bubbling up to you know, eternal life and overflowing onto, the, onto others and onto our circumstances. Oftentimes, the hardest thing that we, that, you know, for us as humans to do is to pursue our own joy is to pursue that which truly and, and honestly and earnestly and best fills our lives and empowers us to live into our circumstances, not to re react to our circumstances, whether they're happy or not. That's why I always like, I'd like to say that Jesus, I believe that Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, it was more joyful than in that moment than anyone anywhere in the history of mankind. I believe that, joy, that Jesus was the most joy-filled person in existence when he was dying on the cross. Why? Because he saw you. He saw you and remembered, this is why I'm dying. I am dying to pay for you. I am dying so that you will be with me in my kingdom. I am dying for you so that I can show you my love. I am dying for you so that as I am resurrected, you will be resurrected too. Because remember, Jesus didn't stay dead. That's why we celebrate the resurrection. That's why we celebrate Easter. And that's why the early church, every Sunday, they started to celebrate every Sunday, every week, and celebrate Easter every single week. They would celebrate the resurrection through communion. They wouldn't just remember his death and his, and his burial and the, and the depressing, gloomy stuff. They would remember his resurrection that they were also resurrected in too. They would remember the good. They would remember the joy. And they were filled with that joy. And that's what, that is what launched them to live the passionate, you know, joy-filled lives that saw the gospel explode. And thousands of people, thousands of, of brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ 
were made day by day. And it was because of the filling of the joy of the Holy Spirit, the joy of Jesus Christ, that same joy that led Jesus to the cross, led martyrs and brothers and sisters in Christ to their martyred deaths because they were so filled with joy because of God, because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice on the cross. And not just because of the sacrifice, but because of his new life, his new life resurrection, his new creation, the new covenant that we live in today. That is why we live in that joy still today, even in the midst of our trials. 2,000 years later, we are living in this new creation, this newness of life, as it says in Romans 6. We do not live in the old religious way of trying to sin less. And, you know, and attain to a holier level by our works. That old way, as we're going to see here in a moment, is, is gone. We live in the new creation kingdom where God has made us sinless. Not sinless, made us sinless, which makes us want to sin less. And holy and pour out our good works from the overflow of our lives. As it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, I'll find it here. I remember it. I remember it was at the end. I forgot to move it. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified, those who he has made holy. He has perfected all of his children forever in the church, those who he is bringing to faith in Jesus Christ. Go back here. It's like we've been given a Ferrari. This is our faith. You know, our faith is, is like being given a Ferrari and many have been pushing it around. You know, been pushing it around when we should just get in. You know, turn the key and boom, rev it up and, get, and burn rubber. Burn rubber, get going. Not because out of a burden, like, oh, I just have to pick up my cross. I got to bear my burden. I got to bear my cross and live my life. No, this is getting in, you know, this is getting in and enjoying it, revving it up, revving up your faith because it is a Ferrari that God has given you to live life in joy because many people look at their faith as a burden to push around rather than as the free gift of a joy ride. That is what faith is meant to be. Now, is life always going to be great and happy and fun and go lucky? No, we're going to, I mean, just look at the early church. You know, we're going to be, we're going to suffer, you know, we're going to have oppressions and persecutions and opposition and challenges from both the worldly and the religious. And so right here, smack in the middle, living a life of grace, living in this joy, we get opposition from both sides, but that doesn't diminish our joy. That doesn't diminish the, the fact that we have a, a Ferrari. We just have a bunch of people that are jealous that we're actually like in the car, revving up, driving, and they're like still trying to push it up a hill. That doesn't change the fact that our faith is a joy ride that God has given us to enjoy. The new covenant needed a new paradigm. Here's where we get to that, that new paradigm of the old versus the new. You know, the old covenant with the, the, the temple and the nationalistic mentality and, you know, you know, fighting for Israel and fighting for this nation and, and, and works-based salvation and, and sacrificial system and everything around the temple and, and just the do's and the do-nots, everything that was around that. Um, and in, in comparison, in juxtaposition to the new covenant, where Jesus is our great high priest, who has gone, on, you know, gone through the curtain for us and is our intercessor in heaven. And we are the new temple, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 6 says, We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. It also repeats that again in Revelation at the very end of all things, that we will be with him in 
in the new Jerusalem, in the new city, on the new earth with him, in his kingdom, and he will be dwelling. He, I will dwell with them. He will walk with us, and the he will be our God, and we will be his people as we are on this earth. We are the place and the means by which God brings people into relationship with himself. And the law is like a worn-out garment. The old ways, the old, we're going back to this juxtaposition between the old and the new. So that the law is like an old, worn-out garment. Um, think about this. It's, it's, he's, he's putting this, this imagery here in our minds. Nobody tears a piece of cloth from a new coat to patch an old one. If they do, they tear the new. And the patch from it won't even fit the old one anyway. And other places it says that it'll pull from the garment now, you know, because it'll, it'll shrink. But it's, it's like that concept. Like it's like buying this new you know, article of clothing. You know, I was kind of you know, teased, you know, that you know, seeing all the, it's like the style now of the old garment with all the, the tatters. And stuff. It looks like people got in, in, a fight with, in a fight with a weed whacker. But you know, I, I, was, a, I was a teenager in the 90s. I, was, I knew about all the grudge, the grunge. I had the grunge style, right? And so it's this, you know, you buy this new, this new article of clothing, this new pair of jeans. We'll say a new pair of jeans or a new jacket. We'll say a new jacket. You buy this brand spanking new jacket because your old one is wearing it. You got the zipper is, is falling apart. The hood is falling apart. It's falling out. You know, the, ins, you know, that, the whole like omni thing that reflects your heat back is like tearing out. And you know, the, you know, the, the feathers are coming out of your down, down coat and stuff like that. And it's like taking this new one and tearing it apart in order to fix the old one. No one does that. Who, who does? No one does that. They repurpose the old. They repurpose the old um, and, 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 you know, and throw out the old. They, they, they throw out or repurpose the old and they wear the new because it's new. The zipper works. The hood is intact. All the feathers are inside. You don't ruin a new garment to fix an old one. That's Jesus' point. Jesus' point is you don't ruin a new garment to fix an old one. You repurpose or trash the old. His second point is the stretched out wineskin. Now, now wineskins, what they would do is they would take the, the skins from the sacrifice of the goat or the sheep or, or oxen and they would take the leather. They would, they would, use, they would be very careful to take the, the sacrifices, you know, the goats or the sheep and to peel it off into, in one piece of leather so they could repurpose that leather for other things. And, and a wineskin was one of those things. They would tell, you know, if you, you've probably seen these before, it's like this bag that, you know, start, you know, it's like at the end, it's got a cork in it usually or a screw top. And then it like, it like widens out into like this sack and it's got like this, you know, thing that goes around, you know, as a strap around your shoulder. Well, what would happen is that they would make this, this wineskin bag to ferment the wine, you know, either like a shoulder strap or like a bigger bag. Um, and it would stretch out as it fermented, it would actually stretch the leather. And at, the, at that final point, it would be as stretched out as it could be because you're put, you put the new wine in it and it was a new, a new bag new, and a new wine and it would ferment and stretch it out. Now, here's the thing. When you, if you would take that old wineskin, that old leather, and put new wine into it after it was empty, um, it would, you would, again, try to ferment and stretch. But the leather had already been stretched out to its, to its full mass. And so it, it would burst the skins and, and break open everywhere. They would repurpose those kinds of things later. So Jesus's point isn't about the wine. I think I want to make sure that we understand that Jesus, is, his point is not about the wine itself. It's about the wine skin. It's about the garment. It's about the materials. Um, so you don't use old wineskins to try to put new wine. This new wine is the new wine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it's basically Jesus is saying you don't try to fit new grace into old structures. The new kingdom of God is different than the, king, the old kingdom, the, than the old, na- you know, the old nation of Israel, the old law and systems. You know, this is no longer that. It's something completely different. It's a new creation, new kindness, new creation, completely new and separate thing. So you can't try to fit it into or try to readjust and patch up the old, the, the holding the old with the new. You, you ditch the old one altogether. You, you thank it, you let it aside. You know, like a KonMari method, you know, thank the object and, and go, let it go to the thrift store or the dump, right? In order to take hold of and grasp and live in the new, the new kingdom. 
because he's like again, like I'm uh, like I'm saying, he's not talking about the the you know the quality between the the wine, you know. But this phrase at the end, he, he says, "And nobody drinks old who drinks old wine wants new." I prefer the old, they say. This isn't talking about comparing. You know, it's not an, an, it's not talking about this that the old is better. I mean, some of, some of your Bible translations might say that for the old is better, the old is good. That, that word simply means it's good enough. It is satisfactory. You know, the old, the, the law and the traditions of men um, is what they're talking about. And basically what, what he's trying to say here is, is pinpoint this, I'm unwilling to drink the new. I only want the old. I'm unwilling to try the new. It's this complacency, this not speaking to, like I said, like to the quality of the, of the old versus the new, but rather their immovable, hard-hearted stubbornness to the old. Jesus' big point is this. The new creation is too colorful and dynamic to try repairing the old worn-out law that could not save. The gospel of the new covenant kingdom of God cannot be contained by the old, unyielding structures. Jesus was inaugurating the new kingdom of the new creation kingdom of God and could not be, you know, one that could not be interpreted through the old religious system of Judaism. Faith in the, in the gospel of the new covenant kingdom of grace, love, and filling with God's Holy Spirit because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is our only hope and source of an ending joy. Believing in this new kingdom, believing that we are a part of that kingdom that Jesus said to pray for. That Jesus said, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, how, you know, holy and, and, and hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in your kingdom in heaven. And this new kingdom that we've been praying for is here and is breaking through and we partner with God to bring that new kingdom here on this earth, to break through God's kingdom into this, this world now. The, and and this, this new kingdom is, is defined by this new covenant kingdom of grace and love and, and the filling of God's Holy Spirit that they didn't have in the Old Testament or, here's the thing, not, or for the majority of the Gospels, the disciples did not have the Holy Spirit they were given the Holy Spirit you know, in, in little things here and there to go and heal and to go and proclaim the gospel. But he did not pour out his spirit on them until he died, was buried, and then rose again from the dead. And then he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So remember that the new covenant didn't inaugurate until after the resurrection when the Holy Spirit was poured out. That's what people had been looking for. Joel chapter two. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and you will prophesy and dream dreams and all these all these amazing things because the life in the spirit is with one another in the church is god's adventure for us in order to live life together fully alive this is god's desire for us it's to live this life the holy spirit being poured out in the church, his kingdom come, his, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, together as his community. The gospel is the Holy Spirit being poured out because of the resurrection. My point is the, desire, is the, is the juxtaposition of the joyless and religious and evangelicalism today who are simply interested in learning more about God and the joy full and free who are interested in experiencing the power and presence of God. This is the life that we're trying to live, is, 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 is seeing this juxtaposition between the two things in Christendom, the joyless and the joyful. What does it look like for you, for us to live a life of joy-filled expression in the kingdom of God on this earth today? And it's because it's, it's, it's like, as we talk about, the, it's the already- and the not yet. It's that oftentimes I think people the, in the already think it's like this, this barrier where we're still living in the old system, the old laws, the old ways of religion, and we're looking forward to still 
this new kingdom joy, this, this new kingdom of grace and, and prophecy and, and Holy Spirit and, and pouring out of the Spirit and dreaming dreams and, having pro- and, and speaking prophecies and, and all this stuff and just this great new kingdom, new creation mentality on the other side of death. Like death is the great salvation. And therefore death becomes our Savior, not Jesus. Rather than seeing that God's kingdom is here now, that we are living in the already, and we're looking forward to an even greater not yet. That God's kingdom is now. God's kingdom is here. We are living with the Holy Spirit p- being poured out and dreaming dreams and, and speaking prophecies and, and speaking in tongues and just seeing healings and seeing God's presence breaking through. His will being done on earth as it is in His kingdom in heaven. It's breaking through. And we are living today in the new covenant kingdom of God. And we will see a greater kingdom after death. But death does not become our great Savior. What does that look like in our life today? What does it look like for us today? Well, let's look at a joyless existence. A joyless existence is not just like this grumbling, like like solemn, gloomy. Oftentimes this could be just simply religion that's being pushed on us. And we live in this environment of shame and fear. I want to focus on this. This was very important. Faith insecurity. When, we, when we're constantly questioning whether we've done enough for God to love us. Have we done enough to earn God's favor? Have we done enough to pay God back for his sacrifice on the cross? Are we secure? Often, if we're living a joyless existence, oftentimes it's because we don't have security in our faith. We don't believe that we are enough for God. Dismissive of ourselves and others. Controlling. We try to control people through laws and regulations and do's and the don'ts, right? It becomes a very controlling environment. It can be so depressing. Oh, unsure about everything. Unsure about the Bible and unsure because we're so, you know, all about getting it right. And we got to make sure that we get it right because if we get it wrong, then that is devastating to us because we're unsure Versus having the grace to say, I'm going to change my mind. I can change my mind. I thought this was what the scripture passage meant, but actually I'm wrong. And so I'm going to try to discover the real. Um, being div- super divisive and angry, con- condemning and condescending. Now this, this joyless existence can oftentimes, because we're trying to control and be right all the time and, and try to have this security, you know, this security in our faith and you know, this surety in our, in, our, in our lives and our faith, we can become angry at ourselves. Now I tell you what, I, I have cursed myself out more times than anyone else. You know, I don't really, I don't curse anyone else out except for me, oftentimes. That can be so self-abasing sometimes and I'm still working through that. Um, and that can be, it can grow divisive. Uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, this, is, this is one of the, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in, in verse 7. Corinthians 3, 7 through 18. It says, but just think about it. When death was being distributed, uh, carved in letters of stone, it was a glorious thing. So glorious, in fact, that the children of Israel couldn't look at, at Moses' face because of the glory of his face. A glory that was to be abolished. And this is talking about you know, when, when Moses was receiving the law and everything. So there's all these things. So the, the law was good because it brought people into this covenant with God. It wasn't evil by any, by any means. We don't call the law evil. It was glorious for them. Uh, a glory, but that was, that was going to be abolished later on. It, it, was, it already had an expiration date, this planned obsolescence. But in that case, when the Spirit is being distributed, won't that be glorious too? Talking about the new covenant now. It's distributing condemnation. If, if distributing condemnation to the law is glorious, you see, how much more glorious is it to distribute vindication? salvation. In fact, what used to be glorious has come, to, come in this respect to have no glory at all because of the new glory, which, which, goes far, oh, sorry, which goes so far beyond it. For if the thing which was to be abolished came with glory, how much more glory will there be for the thing that lasts? So because that's the kind of hope we have, we speak with great freedom. We aren't like Moses. He put a veil over his face to stop the children of Israel from gazing at the end of what was, to, of what was being abolished. 
So the context there is when, whenever Moses would go and meet with God in the tent of meeting, his face would glow because he had been in God's presence and they made him wear a bag over his head. <laughs> the difference is that their, that their minds were hardened. You see, the same veil lies over the reading of the Old Covenant right up to this very day. It, what, it isn't taken away because it, it's in the Messiah that it is abolished. So they have to uh, you know, believe in, in the of Jesus Christ and forsake trying to abide by the laws in order to, for the veil to be lifted off of their faces. Yes, even today, even to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies upon their hearts. But whenever, but whenever he turns back to the Lord, the veil is removed. That was a saying, basically, like when you come to faith in Jesus, the veil is removed. And your, and your face shines. You're able to shine your face again. Now, the Lord here, in, in this context, when he talks about here, you know, he who returns to the Lord, he says, now the Lord here means the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, without any veil on our faces, gaze at the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. And, we are, and, and so are being changed into the same image, the same image of, of, Jesus, as Jesus, of Jesus, as we're looking at a mirror, from glory to glory, from glory to glory, to glory to glory, just as you'd expect from the Lord, the Spirit. Galatians 2, uh, 19 through uh, 3, 5 says this. Let me explain it like this. Through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with the Messiah. I love how the Passion Translation says this. The nails of his cross crucified me too. Crucified me with him. I am, however, alive. But it isn't me any longer. It's the Messiah who lives in me. In the life I do still live in the flesh, I live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside God's grace. If your know, righteousness comes through the law, then the Messiah died for nothing. You cannot justify yourself through rules and regulations, through do's and the don'ts. It's only through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You witless Belgradians! <laughs> Just kidding. You witless Galatians! Can you imagine being told that in, in, a, in the Bible? You know, your name being like right there, you know, you witless Belgradians, like, hey, I take that personally, right? This was kind of Paul kind of unhinged. Uh, he was very, very passionate, and this was him uh, just being very passionate. So, you know, you, you witless Galatians, who has bewitched you? King Jesus was portrayed on the cross before your very eyes. There's just one thing I want to know from you. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of Torah or the law? or by hearing and believing. You are so witless. There it is again. You began with the Spirit, and now are you ending with the flesh? Did you really suffer so much for nothing? If indeed it is going to be for nothing, the one who gives you the Spirit and performs powerful deeds among you, does he do this through your performance of Torah, or through hearing and believing? This is what he's talking about. The, the Galatians were, were living this joyless experience, trying to do and don't do the things of the law and trying to mix in Jesus. And they were trying to patch the old garment with the new garment. They were trying to fit old, they were trying to fit new wine into old wineskins. And it was bursting. They were trying to do this. The, the, the Judaizers in Galatia were trying to do this. And so many people are doing that today. You might be watching this and doing it yourself, trying to fit new wine into your old wineskins of the law and, 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 the, and regulations and do's and don'ts and don't handle this, don't taste that, don't do this. It's all about the don'ts. It's all about the don'ts. Because you're a dirty, rotten sinner saved by grace. You are saved by grace. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are a new creation invited to live this joy-filled freedom life. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. For freedom you have been set free. So don't use it for, to go and, and indulge in the world around you, in this, spirit, in this physical realm, and the junk of the flesh. Do you know that the Bible doesn't actually ever say your flesh anymore? 
He always says the flesh. There's not a possessive in there. It's about living life according to you, who you are, according to Christ. Christ in you. Like he said, I have died. It's no longer me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That's the way that we're meant to live our lives. That's the way of, of grace. That's the way that we believe that the Holy Spirit was poured out, poured into us to enliven us, to give life to our, our mortal bodies so that we wouldn't obey the, the flesh and around us and, and, the, and the opinions and the worldviews of people around us. Or even, even the way that we've lived, the, the old tapes that we've, we've recorded in our minds about who we are and what we do and what we don't do. That's what metanoia means, you know, changing the mind. This, this word repent comes from this. It's change your mind. It's change your mind. And what Jesus does and, and the way, that's why I love this, you know, the, the followers of Jesus were originally called followers of the way because the Bible is not a book of laws and rules and regulations. The book of the Bible is, is, a, is the book of the way, the, the right way. The, the way of life, the way of grace, the way of newness, the way of truth, the way of true living, the way to truly live fully alive. You can't, you can't find that in self-help books. You can't find that in the news. You can't find that on social media. You can't find that in your friends and, and your family outside of Christ. You can only find it in Christ and the communion of saints in the church. That is the only place to find what truly brings you to become fully alive, to live a fully alive ex existence. You don't have to be a book nerd to love Jesus. You don't have to be you know, growing in knowledge all the time. And, and you know, that's one thing that I've been processing through. It's like this, you know, those who just want to, who think that religion, you know, that the faith in Jesus is just basically about coming to church and then going to Bible studies and doing these things and doing that in order to just accumulate more knowledge. The Bible even says, knowledge puffs up. It makes you proud. It makes you joyless. And to live in fear and shame because it's all about just being a nerd and studying this thing and, and knowing the Greek words. I mean, I love it. I mean, I love, you know, all the, the, the nuances and intricacies of the Bible and the, and the language and, and the history. Like that's, but that's me. It's like I'm a book nerd. But it's like, what about my brother or sister in, G, in Jesus who doesn't like to read or can't read very well? And so, I mean, think about this. The early church, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have a, a written Bible of all the, they may have had a letter from Paul if they, if they had one, but they were, they came together with the Holy Spirit to speak and encourage and build up the body in love. Through the, through, the, through the power and the presence of Jesus Christ in the communion and the gathering of saints. And so what does it look like to live a joy, full life in the Spirit? It's personified by love. Is it that word love, agape, this steadfast devotion, this chesed type of love, this you know, as it said in the Hebrew, I believe that agape is more closely aligned to hesed, not ahave. But and so it's like this, this, this devotion, this I'm steadfastly devoted to you. I have chosen to love you and I choose to love you. This, this security. It's this, I, I feel secure in my faith knowing that God loves me, knowing that God is steadfastly devoted to me and to his church and to his people. That I am accepted and therefore I can accept others and show them how God accepts them and wants them. It has a spirit of gentleness. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Sincerity. Grace. Having grace for people. Not wanting to control people. Not wanting to domineer over people. Not wanting to be the authority over them in, in their lives. Not wanting to command and demand that they abide by what you say and, and call it discipleship, that's not discipleship. Being forgiving, bringing reconciliation and unity, and being passionate. The early church was not, you know, the, the early church that, that, you know, the gates of hell could not even stand against, that spread thousands of people per day in the early church, was not accomplished by passionless people. The early church exploded because they had a passionate people who were filled with God's Holy Spirit, who were exuding this love and this joy and this hope in this crazy world around them. Two people all around them. 
They were passionate people. Wars are not won by passionless soldiers. They're won by soldiers who are passionate about the mission and they go forth and they sacrifice their lives and they accomplish the mission set forth before them because it matters, because they are filled with this passion and they give the ultimate sacrifice. The church is filled with joyful people. The early church was filled with joyful people. The church today is still filled with joy-filled people. Will you join and be a part of the joyful church of Jesus Christ? Will you be a part of the joy-filled movement of the Holy Spirit of God? It says this, Acts chapter 2. We're coming back to it. Acts chapter 2 says, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and rejoicing, I'm sorry, and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Jesus says this in John chapter 15. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. He, said, he praised this in, in John chapter 17. He says, is Jesus is talking to God. He said, now I am coming to you, Father. And I speak these things in the world so that they, us, the church, disciples, people who love Jesus, may have my joy completed in them. It's all about joy. And what is it that this looks like? When, when manifested, when, when put, put into, into practice, when, when God's joy is complete in us, what does this look like? Acts chapter 8 says this, So those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. There was great joy wherever God's presence is at. At a wedding feast, at, 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 you know, in, in, in Levi's house, at this great banquet that Levi threw for him. Wherever God's grace and God's new covenant kingdom is being experienced and, and unleashed, there's great joy. Joyful lives are the result of a life filled with the Holy Spirit who have been, you know, lives that have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Remember, then and now. So when the gospel of the kingdom comes forth through us, his church, this is what we are desiring. There was great joy in that city. And that's what we pray. We pray that there would be great joy in your life, when, that you would experience the presence and the power of God, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life so that you can see God's kingdom breaking through wherever you go, that you can see great joy in your life, that you can see great joy in your family, that you can see great joy in this church, that we can see great joy at Shift Church so that we can see great joy in Belgrade, in our city. Lives are being transformed. People are having hope. People are having joy again. People are loving and serving one another instead of being afraid of one another. And that there's great joy because the kingdom of God is breaking through through you, through us, his church. That is what it means to live a life of great joy. A joy full existence. Go and see God break through to bring great joy in every area of your life. Coming together with your act groups, coming together in home churches, home and coming together in your one-on-ones, coming together with your family around the table. Make the table a sacred place again in your life. 
as Jesus made it a sacred space in his ministry. Because that is what characterizes the church. Breaking bread together, being with each other around a table. Jesus, we pray right now that you would do a mighty work in your people. That you would fill us to overflow with, with joy. That you would use each, each relational opportunity with brothers and sisters in Christ, with our family and our friends who love Jesus, pour out your Spirit, God, to overflowing in our spirits and overflowing in our lives so that we can live that life with you fully alive. Not living circumstance to circumstance, but Lord, living out of the joy into our circumstances because you have filled us, filled us with joy because of your love because you are with us. Our bridegroom is with us. Though Lord, we pray that you would work through your church, work through each one of our lives to bring great joy to our lives, bring great joy to our families, bring great joy to your church, bring great joy to our city. Empower us for your mission in your great joy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Uh, at group week and so our men are, are meeting on Tuesday and our women are on, on Saturday so um, just uh, to, I encourage you guys to, to see your, the table that you're going to join around uh, as a sacred space to come around and to love one another and to build up the body of Christ in love and as you go go forth in your one-on-ones with one another uh, go and encourage one another in, in the love of Jesus have each other over for dinner at each other's homes uh, as, as me and my family do as well like this is what Jesus does he invites people over. He goes over to people's homes, creates this, these wonderful sacred spaces. Go and do like, likewise with Jesus. I love you guys. We'll see you guys on, uh, on Sunday next week.